a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Janie Martino from Undertow, Unlocked and Smiling Mind. I did the sums in my head and I thought, well, I could continue doing this and get paid one one wage for a very long time, or I could do this for many of these developers and really make some some serious money. So I think uh, it was the uniqueness of what I was doing combined with those few things that really added up for me. Janie Martino is one of the most prolific entrepreneurs, directors and investors in Australia. Janie grew up in Melbourne and was a very busy kid. From music to debating to sport, she was the kid who did just about everything. She loved learning and did well at school, finishing with a TER good enough to have a pick of university courses. Her parents, an academic scientist and a librarian, wanted Janie to study law, but Janie wasn't one to stick to traditional career paths. Instead, she chose to go to RMIT and complete a Bachelor of Public Relations majoring in psychology. This degree set the direction for the rest of Janie's career, but her work ethic and grit has been there since she was a teenager, applying for her very first after-school job. 14 and eight months I was out there, I had my top 10 targets of where I wanted to work part-time and my CV was out literally 14 and eight months in one day. Uh, I was circling Chadston Shopping Centre and uh, I got one of those jobs that was in my top 10 And then by the time I was doing year 12, I had two jobs. Uh, By the time I was in university, I got a scholarship to study at the University of Florida and wanted to take some extra money over. So I had three jobs. What were the jobs? What were the three jobs you were juggling at the time? I worked at the ABC shop in retail. I was waitressing at the Keg restaurant and I was cleaning houses, like a couple of houses and, and earning cash. So... Yeah, I I just, it wasn't so much an entrepreneurial spirit at that time. It was probably more leaning on a hard work ethic uh, and drive than anything else. So you finished your degree and you went straight into a PR job or did you sort of do some, take some time off? No, so I actually, uh, when I was in the later years of my high school, uh, my principal changed. It was the last two years and she won the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award um, and was the first educator to do so. And she was one of the only people who didn't dislike my disruptive nature um, and actually really embraced it. So she became quite an early mentor to me and she actually put me on the school council when I finished year 12, which um, I was literally a third, sometimes almost I felt like a quarter of the age of most of the other board members. So that was, I loved that experience and that was probably a gateway into my sense of fearlessness and just being able to sit around a table and not 
get caught up in who else was there, but just worry about doing what I was there to do. So she definitely unlocked that for me. Uh, And then through that process, I actually met Margaret Porritt, who is still, she just turned 80 and she's still in her business based in Melbourne. It's Feathers. It's a fashion retail business. She's been bankrupt and recovered twice. And I thought she was the most amazing woman. And I was just desperate to work for her. So I actually finished university and pursued her for a job after I'd graduated to be her sort of brand and and PR manager. And she gave me a big fat no until I worked in the stores. Uh, I wouldn't get anywhere near head office. And I'd worked in retail since I was 14, eight months and one day. You know, I did not want to go back to retail after I'd just done a degree and I just thought it was incredible. But she sort of explained, well, until you understand our customer and you've spoken to our customer and you've served our customer, I don't want you anywhere near head office. And that for me actually also unlocked something that I've taken and used in every single business that I've run and been in, which is thinking about the customer, understanding the customer and actually getting in and sitting alongside the customer as much as you can. So I went and I did work in the stores for about six months and she then gave me the opportunity to go in part-time to head office and then the marketing manager left. And so I basically said to her, I put a proposal to her and I said, I know that you don't think I'm, because the person had at least three to five years experience in marketing. And I said, but give me three months to perform a better at a better level than the person you've just had in the role and if I don't then we part ways and if I do you keep me on so I worked and then I worked there for a good couple of years of my first job out of university. How big was the business? How big was Feathers at the time? Oh gosh you're really testing my memory now. Yeah. Uh, well it was national uh, it had they would have had about 15 stores it was probably a $20 million business. So not not huge and, and run pretty lean. And that's another great skill that I learned from Margaret. I'd take her a quote for something and she said, go back. I don't want to, I don't want to talk to you until I've seen three quotes. <laughs> she said, do you think I'm going to take the first quote? You know, just all those amazing skills that yeah. when you're working for someone, you just think you are an absolute ball breaker and you are doing my head in. But then when yeah. you come out the other side, you've just got this backpack of tools that you never lose. It's just amazing. Janie went from feathers to the natural beauty and skincare brand, Natio. She spent 18 months learning the trade before a property developer asked her for help with their marketing. Her first role was to turn a converted brewery into a lifestyle housing development. And when she finished, she had other developers asking her to do the same thing for them. Pretty quickly, Janie realised she'd be better off creating her own PR firm rather than working for other people. So at only 25 years old, Janie created Undertow Media and the business was an instant hit. In under 12 months, I had a junior sort of account coordinator and then quite a senior. Very early, I put on a senior person. Uh, So that was in under 12 months. Um, And then we grew pretty quickly in the eight years I had the business, we were well over sort of 30 people when I sold it. So it for, for a comms business, that it was a pretty rapid 
rapid bit of growth. And what kind of revenue were you guys generating? Oh, it was small. Yeah, it was super profitable. It was, I reckon it was only about four and a half mil rev, but the profit was up nearly a million to, you know, between 800 and a million bucks. So it was a super profitable business. And the reason was that I think we structured the way we charged in a really clever, quite unique way. And also my team and the culture that we had, they just worked so hard, but they were, but really efficiently. And so it meant that for a service-based business, the margins were, were really good. Did you raise any money for, for Undertow or, or was it all just bootstrapped from day one? No, I just bootstrapped it from day one. Uh, and I I think I took out a loan at one point, you know, for an office fit out. And that was really about it in yeah. terms of debt. And, that, and that's the, the positive thing about a service-based business. You really can build, it's based so much on your and your team's IP, uh, but you really can build it with very little uh, and that's, you know, that's a real positive. On, on the negative side, there is only one of you <laughs> and only so many people. So it's not a scalable model, um, which is obviously then reflected in valuations and, and things like that. But it's also reflected in, you know, I came out of that and I was like, I never, ever want to do a service-based business again. <laughs> what gave you the confidence to, to do that and to go out on your own? And I presume you put some of your own money into the business to start it off with. Uh, to start off to get offices, all that kind of stuff that, that you need to do. And you're, you're still pretty young. Yeah, I think firstly you're very kind saying it was only a few years ago because it was actually about 20. Um, but I think to be honest, for me, I didn't think about it too much. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that I was careless uh, and I, I did it without thinking at all, but those that component, I guess that would normally have people doubt whether or am I too young or, you know, is it the right time and will I have enough capital? That didn't really even enter my mind. Like I had the conviction of I knew I wanted to run my own show. I'd registered the business name a couple of years prior. I had people in the industry telling me, I guess, so that was my market research piece, that they would like me to come and do the same thing for them. And then from a business planning and sort of financial point of view, I did the sums in my head and I thought, well, I could continue doing this and get paid one one wage for a very long time or I could do this for many of these developers um, and really make some some serious money. So I think uh, it was the uniqueness of what I was doing combined with those few things that really added up for me. In 2009, you've been, you're still very young, you're still early 30s, and you've been running the business for seven years and you, you sell the business to, to Bastion, uh, which is a Melbourne-based uh, business. Did, did they come to you? Did you run a process? How did, how did that come about? Unlike some other founders and entrepreneurs, I always tend to begin with the end in mind. And I always knew that I didn't want to do that business forever. Even when I started it, I just did not see myself being a a PR or communications marketing person all my career. And so through the years, I definitely kept in touch with all of the big agencies uh, and had a number of conversations when I knew I'd had three children in three years. And 
my husband at the time stayed at home with them and there was no no real need for me to be at home more, but I just I felt like I did want to be at home more and spend time with them. Coupled with, I actually I loved the business, I loved my team. You know, my original account coordinator was in line to be the CEO. You know, I, people it was a great culture, and I loved the commercial side and the business side, but I couldn't stand the work. I just wasn't passionate about the work, and so I just couldn't keep doing it. And I happened to meet the guys from Bastion. They were just starting. They had a couple of businesses that they were getting off the ground, but they didn't really have revenue and certainly not profit. And so I walked in as a complimentary solution uh, and also a way for them to pretty instantly, you know, cash flow the business, their other businesses. So it was a win-win situation. Um, They had a really interesting group of people. I sat on the board for a couple of years and I divested, uh, you know, all but 10%. And so I retained some interest, which was good as well, uh, while I worked out what else I wanted to do. So it just, everything about it, just the timing, the structure of their business, the way, you know, the earn out and what they were happy to do in terms of my involvement moving forward, it just just clicked. So I was speaking to Adi Schiffman a few weeks ago and he said when he sold his first business, he almost sort of woke up the next day and, and literally didn't know what to do. Did, is that, did you have a similar dilemma when you, you had an incredibly, success, incredibly successful business from a very young age and suddenly you've sold it and you're no longer running it, you're no longer CEO? Uh, did you sort of wake up on Monday morning, be like after a, an exam and, and think, what do I do next? Definitely. I, I actually had a huge identity crisis as well because, because I'd done that from such a young age Uh, and during that time as well um, we'd been on the block and so um, that had I guess exposed me to other parts of the media and different opportunities in terms of getting books published and I'd had other things going on but I'd actually forgotten about it so you were actually on the block so it was you were a contestant on the show yes we were. That's right. Yeah, yeah. season two. I, I don't – it's so long ago. That was 2004. So, yes, uh, and it, that wasn't the reason for our marriage breakup. Everyone does ask that, whether it was the death of us because it was the death of many of the couples who've been on there. Um, what did you, you guys come? Did you win or how did you go? Well, Adam, I like to say we won the hearts and minds of the Australian public because <laughs> we, we got on the reserve so we didn't actually for 14 weeks work, which it was at that time. And we had to do our do our sort of day jobs as well at that time. Yeah, uh, we didn't get an ascent, but we won the most popular couple. So we won a <laughs> we won a Toyota Rav Four. So you know, <laughs> wasn't all lost. That's funny. I actually remember, I, I never put two and two. Yeah, I remember I remember you on the show, and this is going back a few years now. But yeah. ever since I've known you since then, I never realised that was you. So that's yeah. uh, yep, that's funny. Uh, and that was while you were running Undertow, or that was yes. after? No, after that was while, and it actually was filmed in Sydney. So as well as uh, running the business, and, and I, I'd only probably only been going, yeah, two or three years then, or not even. So I had to fly back constantly, as well as doing the show in Sydney. It was just, I had a client up there though, uh, so that was great. But, yeah, I was just constantly going back and forth on top of it all. So it was a pretty hectic um time but yeah great experience but it certainly opened my eyes up to you know to doing lots of other things so I think uh when when Undertow was sold and 
I was still connected to the business, but not day to day. And so in some ways that was even more confusing, you know, and who am I now? What am I, what am I good at? Uh, What do I want to do? What's important to me? I wasn't passionate about what I was doing anymore in that business operationally. So what is it that I might get passionate about? And I actually, for the first time ever, you know, probably since primary school, I did actually just stop and really reflect. And a big part of that was meditation, actually, because I'd been meditating for a few years prior, you know, since Tommy, my eldest, was born. And I just, I got really into meditation because I had more time, right? So I I got a really quite rigorous routine um, going and it just made me really reflect on all of those bigger questions, I guess, and, you know, what's really important. And then coupled with that, I got really involved in my local community. So the boys were in primary school and kinder at that time. And um, I hardly sat on the sidelines. I was president of the kindergarten and we redid the playground and, you know, rewrote all the policies and everything. So I, I sort of did all that with gusto, but I had a lot of opportunity actually just to be with the kids. And what I noticed was, these kids were so anxious compared to what I remembered, you know, and and their triggers for getting upset or feeling anxious or worried were small. And so that really, it was that coupled with a bit of reflection, some more work on sort of a, a, a writing project with a friend who was a teacher, toying with the idea of a wellbeing app, that I started to feel like, okay, this is this feels right to me. This feels like the direction. I use my commercial nows, use my network, and really start to think about a more purpose-led thing that I work on next. Um, so I was working on that and then happened to have a cup of tea with James Tutton, who had been a client uh, and had become a really good friend. And he said, what are you doing now? It's been, you know, nearly year and a half, two years. And I said, well, I've actually just been soul searching about what I want to do. And I'm thinking it's, you know, something to do with well-being and meditation and, and young people. And he said, well, I've been thinking exactly the same. He's, he's been a huge meditator for off and on since he was at school himself. Uh, and he said, I've been looking over at the, the mindfulness in education courses and some study and research from out of Harvard and UCLA, and I want to bring that here. And I said, well, that's all in-person stuff though. So I said, why, why don't we combine our ideas and use an application to deliver evidence-based mindfulness in education and, and for young people? Um, and so that's really how, that's how my next big thing was born. That app that Janie and James created was called Smiling Mind, and it quickly became Australia's most downloaded mindfulness app. If you've heard of apps like Headspace and Calm, you'll be familiar with the concept. But the difference between Smiling Mind and those big overseas-based apps is that Janie and James created Smiling Mind as a not-for-profit, and that decision helped the enterprise grow really quickly. It now has an incredible 600,000 monthly active users, and 170,000 teachers use it in their classrooms every single day. However, while apps may be free to use, they're not free to make and maintain. So Janie and James called on their networks to help make their dream a reality. 
We actually both have a lot of hustle uh, and we both through, yeah, James at Moonlight and then Neo Metro and, and myself at, at Undertow had a lot of favours out in the industry coming back our way. So we were able to use those and, and worked with designers and developers that were pretty much willing. They loved the vision and what we were doing and they were willing to do it for next to nothing. So we bought, we, we created the, fir- the brand, the platform for $26,500. Needless to say, we've had to rebuild it multiple times since then because um, it was shaky uh, and probably not built uh, a house built on on some sand or straw. But I think um, from there we we wrote a business plan, even though it was a not-for-profit. Yeah. So we did, you know, a financial plan, a business plan, how we we're going to market it. And we wanted to create a brand and a service that everyone would want to be part of their lives and, and be part of. And so then we knew that if we did that successfully, the other things would come quickly and a lot more easily. So, yeah, we wanted, we basically created a consumer brand and we didn't act like a not-for-profit from that point of view, nor did we act like a not-for-profit in terms of how we were or how we were formed and how we operated. So I operated it for the first probably 10 to 12 months while we uh, and, and every single person that we sat in front of, even if they liked the idea, thought it was crazy. They thought it would never work. Children will never meditate. They won't sit still. You shouldn't combine technology and meditation. It's not proven. And so there was literally only probably three three main people, three or four main people that backed it um, from the beginning. Um, certainly the traditional philanthropic funds and things like that, it's, it's only probably now eight years down the track that we're really getting strong traction with them and, and government. So you guys, so you, you've had experience in starting a business and uh, so that kind of stuff you're good with. But in terms of the content for the app, so look at Headspace, which I guess came after you and is now now worth, I think, in the billions of dollars. That was founded by by Andy, who was a former monk and, and could actually run the meditation himself. But neither you guys, uh, neither you or James were, were monks, as far as I know. So, so how did you actually get the content for the app? We actually recognised that really early, obviously. Uh, and all we did was what we do with any other, other business and think, well, who are the best in their field in the country? And we went and found them. So Dr. Craig Hassett out of Monash University, he was one of our first meetings. And so we just got on the phone uh, and on the email and set up meetings with all of the key people. Uh, and he was someone who then directed us to a few different psychologists and people we could work with to actually write the content. So we always look to engage experts um, to do the things we couldn't and we just focused on the things we could do, which was, you know, hustle the hell um, out of anything and, and, you know, run really successful businesses or operations. So, yeah, that, we just focused on our strengths. Um, and got other people to to help us there. How did the app grow? So, do you have what was the down, active users? So year one, year two, year three. How did it? Did it was a super viral growth. I guess you guys didn't spend a lot of marketing because you just probably didn't have the money to spend on marketing. Yeah. So we one of the strategies we used early on was we leaned really heavily on ambassadors, and that was obviously well before the influencer trend. 
and because we designed the content to be basically from ELC or, or primary school right up to adult, we wanted our ambassadors and the people that would help us promote the app to be like we had musicians, we had footballers, we had, doc, you know, Dr. Andrew Rochford. So that was one of our strategies and that worked really well in terms of, you know, influence. and But, yeah, I, I can't remember the actual stats from year-on-year year growth, but we've definitely seen our largest level of growth in the last sort of three to four years and in particular in the last six months just with COVID. Like our, our app usage has gone up like 500%. And you touched on it earlier. So you look, when you see sort of Calm being valued at, at US a billion and Headspace probably about the same, having raised a couple hundred million. And you guys, if you look at a really crass metric of sort of value per user, if you were for profit, you'd be worth upwards of $100 million. Yeah. Uh, do you ever sort of think, well, maybe we, we would have been better off <laughs> doing that and then having the, this money and then donating it and, and being able to spend the money how you, how you want for great causes? Or, or do you think – you know, this is actually a better way to do it. Of course, that crosses my mind and mainly when people ask why we've done what we've done. But all I have to do is spend time, you know, which I do or, or Addy, our CEO, shares with me the testimonials and the stories from the community. And it's very, very different to a for-profit, you know, tech, high-growth business. And I believe, I really believe in the you know, for profit, for purpose model too. I'm not saying that, but Smiling Mind is also very grassroots. It's very, it's it's in the curriculum. It's, um, which is what we wanted. We wanted it to be part of people's everyday at school, at home, in their families. And I just don't know if you look at, say, some comparisons of Headspace and Calm that, businesses like that would ever have the same community sentiment and the same um, feeling. And even our corporate program, which funds about probably between 30 to 40% of our organisation now and is part of our sustainability model, the reason a lot of corporates love to work with Smiling Mind is, one, because the content and the delivery is exceptional and, like, we've rolled it out with IBM globally, we've translated into Japanese and the American accent, so that's one. But the second thing is they see themselves contributing to a whole ecosystem of healthy minds. So they're, they're yes, they're paying for the program and, yes, that's a benefit to their bottom line and their employees, but it's also a benefit to the community that they operate in and that's pretty powerful. So there's certain things that I just feel it gives our organisation a completely different sort of feel than if it was a, a high sort of fast growth company. It's 2013 now and while you've got Smiling Mind doing really well, you've come up with another business idea uh, called Shout, which is essentially a, a, a platform which helps not-for-profits raise money. Uh, did, where did the idea come from uh, and were you, were you looking for ideas at the time or just sort of just struck you as, you know what, this is something I can, I can, I can run with? Yeah, I think the idea stemmed mainly from being in the sector and seeing that, particularly having a quite a small and a startup, I guess, not-for-profit, there was no real way to raise money and focus on micro-donations and a younger audience. And the 
if you look at the average age of donors generally, it's it's definitely sort of the ageing population. So I saw a problem uh, and quite I, I felt like I also understood tech and, and mobile well enough to execute and I spoke to a few people about it and they loved the idea and so I quickly formed, I guess, a seed a seed round uh, and a board of people from, you know, sort of the media industry and, and marketing and uh, and then, yeah, raised my first round of capital. So that and that process was a really big jump for me. So I felt like I, you know, I'd done the operations side before, I'd now done the, the tech side before, I was clear about the problem and how it was going to solve it. But what I didn't realise, having built my own business before without taking external capital, was the pressure I would feel doing that and the difference that it made to the way I felt about running that business. Like a lot of Jane's ideas, Shout was ahead of its time. These days, we take it for granted that we can access the internet on our smartphones. But back in 2013, mobile commerce use was a fraction of what it is today. And Shout would set itself apart from its competitors by being the first fully mobile donation site. Over three years, Shout helped not-for-profits raise hundreds of millions of dollars, with the business taking a tiny clip of every transaction. Three years into Shout, JD decided to sell it to ANZ Bank for an amount reportedly in the millions. A fantastic result, but not quite enough for Janny to retire on. After spending a year helping ANZ integrate the product, it was time for Jane to move on to a next challenge. And it was here she came across a young founder named Matt Berryman. A former professional cricketer, Jane had come across Matt while she was working at Shout. And when Matt was undertaking a seed round for his startup, he asked Janie to invest. That startup was a tiny business called Unlocked. The idea for the business was to create a mobile platform which would show targeted ads to users in exchange for loyalty points that they could then cash out on real-life products. Tell me a bit about how you came across Matt and and how you became an investor and, then, and, and how you actually got more involved in the business. Yeah, so Matt did some consulting work for me at Shout, so we'd already worked together. And when I was at the bank, he he showed me something that had come across his desk. Um, it was, you know, the start of, of the unlocked concept, but it wasn't commercialised. And he said, I reckon I can commercialise this and, and make it into a, a monster business. And I said, I love it and I think you should run it, you know, because you've been sitting on the sidelines consulting and, like, you'd be great as the visionary for this business and you believe in it and you know how to commercialise it and grow it globally. Um, and I said, I'll definitely put some money in. Uh, so I did that. And then uh, literally when I was sort of, my, I did my year at ANZ and, and he said, look, I, I really, it's, it's 15 people. We're going to grow massively over the next however many years. I really want you to come in and help me grow, help me with the people side of the business, which I'm super passionate about. Uh, so that was interesting to me. So I agreed to sort of start out consulting. Then I got involved in the operations and, you know, as as happens, you just end up loving it. Like it was a fast growth startup. It was probably one of the country's most more exciting ones, I think. And as a lot of the investors have said to me, you know, at the time um, and even since it was a license to print money, um, the you know, the, the business model was really clever and 
it was just, and it was a great team and a great culture. So you were, you were at Unlock for a couple of years and you, you sort of various different roles. I think you became COO of the group. Uh, and then in 2018, uh, Matt had some, some fairly high profile um, mental health issues, which I guess given your background, you would have been well versed at understanding and, and you actually took over as CEO of the business. Uh, how did how did that happen and, and was that a difficult sort of transition to make for both you and Matt? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I always like running the show and being the boss, so that wasn't a difficult transition. <laughs> and to be honest, like parts of it I was I was running anyway and that's, that's often the great thing about that COO, CEO, visionary combo. You know, you've got you've got that person who both the people working there and and the investors and the external world wants to hear from, and they can just focus on doing what they do best. So in that sense, um, and certainly we were heading towards an IPO, and the bankers were very insistent when we sort of shared with them um, Matt's news. You know that he didn't think he he wanted to be a publicly listed CEO knowing that his diagnosis and I think that was a super smart decision um, by him at the time. I think it's not to say people, you know, with mental health issues and or illnesses can't run publicly listed companies at all. But at that time, I think it was a, a smart decision. And so, you know, nothing would make me more happy or proud than being able to to take the business forward. I see I had you know, the board support and, and so and it was a great opportunity for me to be CEO of a listed company. So, you know, it was a great team. I had their respect and, and it was mutual. So, yeah, I was excited by the opportunity um, and the transition was smooth. After Matt stepped aside, he's obviously still a, a big voice in the business. I imagine he stayed as a director and, and yep. obviously his founder and former CEO. How did you guys did you guys ever have disagreements on anything? If, if you want to do something, would you have to run it past him or was it, was it pure was it a board dynamic? How did that, how did you guys work together in that, in that period? Have you done, you must have done some background research on this and, and asked some staff because I'm sure they heard some Barneys. I, no, I definitely, um, I guess for me, I have the type of personality that I'm really easygoing and, I'm flexible, but I also will dig my heels in if I feel strongly that something is or isn't right for the business. And so, you know, yes, there were times where I just did not agree uh, and and or Matt wasn't comfortable with something that I was doing. So we had a lot of those discussions, but we had a really strong sort of connection and friendship and, uh, you know, we would actually often come away from those discussions and disagreements with a way better outcome. So I certainly never, and they were always respectful uh, and always from the position of that we were both very, very good at what we did. Um, and, and that was kind of, that was the foundation. And, and, and yeah, I think as well, me understanding, as you touched on before, I deeply understand a lot about mental health and mental illness and actually, you know, was even the one saying to him, look, do you think you should get this checked out? So I think, you know, that as well made it easier because I I knew when to push and when not to. And I knew when something was uh, a real issue and something was just because he wasn't feeling great. And so that for me, that insight and that knowledge was also super helpful, not just for the business and for him, but but our our working relationship. So you, you're running the business, it's, 
I think you're about to hit $20 million in, in recurring revenue. Everything's going really – you've got this amazing shareholder register from, from the Murdochs to to some great other family officers, uh, Gabby and Hesse, Leibovich from Catch of the Day. There, there's some amazing investors behind the business. And and you were never on uh, on the App Store. You're always on, on the Google Play Store and on the – a couple of days before you're about to at least, I think you may have had your prospectus out and maybe done roaches. I'm, I'm not sure. Suddenly Google goes and shuts you down. Tell me more about what happened there and, and, and what was your, were you at? Were you expecting that? Was it completely out of the blue? You were right. So we'd done the prospectus and we'd done our non-deal roadshow. So, and, uh, you know, in Matt's usual form, who was just brilliant and there were investors really interested in being part of the the future of the business and, um, you know, it was super exciting um, and we really enjoyed that process. And so, and the team, everyone was really excited. And then, yeah, it was about probably six to eight weeks before we were scheduled to list and we had runway up until June, the listing or end of June and the listing was to be early May. And uh, we got a letter from Google. Now, we'd been on the Google Play Store for over three years. Um, Our format, our business model, nothing had changed, like absolutely nothing. Um, And the policies hadn't changed either. And we'd had, you know, multiple, I think, sub 10 apps approved um, and functional on there. So we couldn't believe it Um, and we quickly got uh, some really good help and and some advice and then um, in the UK filed for an injunction, which we actually won against them. But unfortunately, the combination of our limited time before listing and, and diminishing runway, as well as the fact we're in multiple jurisdictions. So we actually, we weren't successful in getting a global jurisdiction to be able to fight Google. And so um, we ended up having, if we went, but with the US, UK and Australia, uh, we weren't able to to fund that. So we we really had our backs up against the wall. We didn't have a choice because the Google Play was the distribution channel for the application, which is where most people go for their Android apps. Looking back now, do you guys do you guys think you could have still, I guess it was even before you started, we were involved in the business, but is it something you could have rectified from an earlier stage in the business or was this inevitable consequence of, of getting to that, to the sort of scale you got to and had perhaps had you stayed small, Google never would have noticed, but it was sort of inevitability or, or do you think Google acted wrongly or, or how do you sort of look back in hindsight a couple of years down the track in terms of what could have been done before? I mean, I think people, you know, there's certainly been people within the industry that said, well, you know, you shouldn't have um, put it on the app store. It's like, well, that, but that's a distribution channel for an app and, and there's plenty of apps that that is their business, the way that they distribute, you know, their commercial business. So I think that's the whole point that commercially, uh, that's why I believe Google were in the wrong because it's not like we put our app up and it was rejected or it was found to be against policy within the first few months or first few times that we submitted the app. It was literally, you know, three plus years later after it was global and we're about to IPO. So that's probably the missing piece, I guess, for me and and potentially why we also won the injunction in the UK. 
so in, I guess in the wash up, there, there was legal action. So the, the business sadly wasn't able to list and you ran out of runway, no, obviously no fault of your own because um, you obviously, A, came in quite late and B, uh, completely uh, existential issue. But what what was the run- runoff? Did, I think there was a legal action against Google. Did that Was that successful or is it still going? Uh, what, what was the sort of wrap up of, of Unlocked? So, well, there was an administration process and we then, the administrators worked with, you know, litigation experts. I, I understand that's still in process in some jurisdictions, but what still is in process is the ACCC's platform inquiry, which you probably would have read about, um, of which, you know, we've been, we've been speaking to them. So that's still, you know, well and truly underway. So, Look, there's still things happening in the background, but, you know, nothing, certainly nothing that's going to happen quickly uh, or or probably easily, noting the, the size and scale of, of the businesses we're talking about. I think if you look at, in, I guess, especially in, in recent years, there aren't many female founder CEOs in Australia who have achieved the success you've achieved. I think you think of sort of Melanie... Melanie from Canva, Bridget from Expert 360, but there hasn't been many, unfortunately. Do you, do you think gender has been a inhibitor to your success or in a way it's helped you or, or, or none of the above? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it matters for me. Um, you know, I've never noticed. I never, I've never thought about, you know, similar to one of your first questions. Like I just, I tend not to overthink things. I just... Um, if things feel right, uh, then I'll move forward with them. And I don't, I don't really think for me, genders come into it. Does that mean that sometimes I may have missed out of op- opportunities? Maybe, but you know, for different reasons, it might if I was a male as well. So I'm not saying that there's not challenges that exist. There absolutely are, and I certainly, I've been on the board of a an AFL football club, so you know, which is a very male-dominated environment. So I understand you know, more than anything as well, it's a numbers game. And I think that the number one thing I come across if I'm speaking to and mentoring young women is uh, I had a really interesting chat many years ago to a young woman with a great business idea. But she said, you know, but I just, I'm just trying to work out like when ideally I, I want to have children. And I said to her, oh, okay. I said, because you're pretty young now and do you have a partner? And, um, she didn't even have a partner at the time. <laughs> and so I said to her, if you're a male, would that even come into your mind as something you need to plan around or think about? She said, no, I actually don't think it would. And I said, okay, so don't think about it. Like, don't, I said, you've got a great idea. You're really talented. Go and do your business. And if you want to have kids at some point, have kids and work it out then. Like, it, so I think, one of the things I have noticed quite consistently is that, you know, women do plan ahead and think about things a lot a lot more um, than just having that that kind of freer, like, well, I feel like doing this and I, I think I can do it. I might not have all the creds I need, but I'm just going to go for it anyway. And if I, you know, if I get knocked back, then I'm not going to worry too much. I, I just, I do feel that's probably quite, that means that, you know, a lot of women don't necessarily even attempt to go for some of the the dreams that they might have and so that's something that I really try and challenge and change because yeah there's there's so many talented women and I agree with you I'd like to 
I would like your statement to be very different. So I think it will be over time, but I just think we have to perhaps un- untangle some of the the thought processes and reasons why women think they might not just be ready. You know, what does being ready mean anyway? Like I've got this great quote on my computer saying, there is almost no such thing as ready. There is only now by Hugh Laurie. And I just think that's that's the way to get more women into the places they need to be. What's the end game for, for Janie? You've, you've had three incredible uh, businesses or entities that you've started and exited. Uh, two you've exited one, still going incredibly well. And you've worked with a number of fast-growing startups. Do you have any more businesses in you or you, is, your, is your sort of path now helping other people? Uh, I think my path will always be a combination. Like I love helping and working with founders. I just, and similar to you, I think we have a really similar philosophy there, like that it's, it's the business and the potential and, but also, you know, the humans. Um, I will always be drawn to that. And, and, and if I do my own thing again, which I can see that I have another one in me, uh, I will still do that. I might not be as, I might not participate as much as I do at the moment, but I will always be there from, you know, a, either an investment point of view or a sounding board. Um, but yeah, I've definitely got another one in me. And this one I think will be definitely around uh, health and wellbeing and how to, you know, I've really worked on my purpose a lot lately. And um, I think, you know, it's helping people be their best. And so it will be, it will be something that achieves that. Since we spoke for this episode, Janie has joined Venture Scaling Group 15 Ventures, where she's a portfolio advisor. She's also hard at work on her own latest startup in the online media space, which is due to go live in the next few months. And that was Janie Martino, founder of Smiling Mind. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.